If if you would, please turn to Galatians chapter 3. Yes, we are moving into the third chapter of Galatians already. (laughs) Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Uh, We'll read through verse 6 this morning, and um, Lord willing, we'll at least get through verse 5. In our study this morning, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness? Father, thank you for your truth, your word, Lord. Thank you that it's clear that we can understand it, Lord, and we don't have to search over mountains and through valleys and over seas, Lord. We have your word with us here and now. God, we pray that as we read and study this word, that your spirit, who is also here with us now, would work through it in our hearts and minds. God, would you encourage and edify each of us, Lord, so that you would be praised and glorified in Jesus' name. Well, it has been a blessing. It's been a, a good challenge to study this book together, the, the great letter of Galatians, the inspired Word of God to some churches in the area of Galatia. And we've been here for several weeks now. We've seen so much about our salvation, about our great God, what He's done for us, what He's going to do. <laughs> we don't want it to just be something that we say and something we just pass over. God saves sinners, like us. And He saves us through Jesus Christ, His Son. Jesus is the only way. His gospel is the only way. Paul's gone over his own experience since his conversion from turning to Jesus away from all of the things in the world, the, the dead works, the false religion. He's talked about his experience through ministry, just the challenges to himself, his ministry, and his message And we've just finished the important lessons brought on by his confrontation of Peter and Barnabas and the others as they were starting to leave the gospel behind. They were starting to change it, the error that they made, that that the gospel comes to us in truth through faith. And our life in this gospel continues through faith. But he's continuing to show the Galatians and us that this is the true gospel from God. And the reason that he's going through all this is because they were turning away from it. They were turning away from the gospel. The the gospel of Jesus Christ is distinctive in its ability to save, right? It's singularly able to save us, Jesus says. There's only one gospel from God that saves. Don't turn from this, he's telling them and he's telling us. Don't walk away from this. But it's important for us to understand that they were not turning away from the gospel to become rotten people. They weren't going out there and, and as people do today on social media so often, deconstructing their faith, right? They, they weren't falling away. They, were, they didn't stop going to church. In fact, from the outside, what it looked like they were trying to do was become better people, right? They were trying to become more religious people, And we talked about this last week, that that counterfeit version of legalism can look very good, 
It can look right. But in the extreme, legalism actually becomes a totally different religion, a totally different set of beliefs. We depart from Christianity. We leave Jesus out when we turn to a life of legalism. It's it's really just a a different set of beliefs and, and practice and religion when we turn away from the true gospel of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So, so Paul says to the Galatians, don't turn from this. Don't, don't turn to religiously following rules and, and trying to be better. And so in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3 here, he, he's talking about, after, after talking about his own experience, he now says, look, look at your own experience. When you heard this gospel, when you believed this gospel, look at what it did to you. As more proof of this gospel, the question is, what was the gospel that you responded to? What was the gospel that you experienced and have been experiencing? And why would you turn to something less than this? Those are his questions that he's, that he's asking them here. And after this, he's going to turn to some more sure and firm evidence the Word of God, the, the Old Testament Scriptures that this, this gospel is built upon, and he'll show the continuity of God's grace to his people from the Old Testament into the New, and, and how it just all fits together. It's always been God's plan to save his people by his grace through faith. He's going to show all of that, but for now, Paul uses this valid evidence, their experience. And, and it's for the purpose of helping them not turn from this gospel. Now, experience is not the ultimate proof, but it's useful. It's a viable part of uh, what this is all about. The gospel was effective in their minds and their hearts as they began. And the gospel will be effective as they continue in their hearts and minds through faith. The gospel of God is powerful. Why? Well, because God is powerful. Because Jesus is powerful. Because the Holy Spirit is powerful, and all three members of the one God, the triune God that we serve, have a role to play in our salvation, and all three members of this one God are powerful. And so this gospel changes our lives, and it continues to change those lives because that's what God does in this great, powerful gospel. But if the gospel hasn't changed your life, And if it isn't continuing to change your life, and I'm not saying if the gospel hasn't made you perfect, that's not what we're saying. God will do that in each of us one day when he brings us home. But if the gospel isn't changing your life, this message is for you along with the other messages that we're going to be studying through Galatians. This is going to help us to understand if you feel stuck in your Christian life, you don't see growth in your Christian life. Listen up. Keep coming. Because if you've seen no change in your life, or, or you've started to think, you know, this gospel thing just isn't working for me. <laughs> if you think, you know, this gospel, it, it's really good to keep me out of hell, but that's about all I know it's good for. You can be sure that you've not really been living the gospel. That, that we haven't been living in faith. You, you've either been trying those two uh, extreme ideas, not within Christianity, but, but when they go in the extremes outside of Christianity that we talked about last week, antinomianism and legalism. You've been trying one or the other, either thinking, well, I can just do whatever I want in this life because Jesus forgives everything and it doesn't really matter. I can live however I want. And then why do I feel stuck in my faith? <laughs> Or you're trying the other extreme side where you're saying, I'm trying to do everything I can. I'm trying to work really hard and it's just not working for me. And either side are focused on ourselves. 
and we're focusing on our own works and our own ability to do whatever we want to do or whatever we think we're supposed to be doing in antinomianism or legalism, and you realize that this isn't working, either one of these, and I'm feeling stuck in my faith, and so Paul's going to help us learn how to grow in this faith. And, and brother and sister, you can feel this whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or 50 minutes. It doesn't take long, but it's very tempting to fall into one of those two errors because our eyes are too often directed in the wrong place. We're looking the wrong way at where we're supposed to be looking. So here at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul gives the Galatians a sight correction. Here's some LASIK for them. And here's some LASIK for us, for our faith eyes, so that we can see clearly. You're looking in the wrong locations. You're looking in the wrong ways. So these instructions apply to us as well when we fall into those errors and and we feel stuck in our faith. The first correction that he gives, number one, in verses one and two, is to put your eyes back on Jesus. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Remember where your eyes were. As we begin, there is a burst of emotion here. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. And that oh there, that, that word that is beginning there in our English is actually there in the Greek also. Oh, almost like he was writing this and he said, oh, foolish Galatians. And, and the person said, do you want me to write that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, write that word oh. It's an emotional marker because Paul's just confounded. He, he's, he's distressed. He says, foolish Galatians. Foolish, this word here is, is the word it means unwilling to use your mental faculties in order to understand. It, it is the word foolish. It can even mean the word stupid. We don't like to use that word much in, in our culture and in our homes. But this is this word here, and it's, it's not a question of their in, in intellectual capabilities, okay? It's not their mental faculties that he's questioning, uh, their ability to comprehend. He's also not telling them, look, you're ignorant because you don't have the information. No, he says, this is worse. You have the information and you have the capability to understand it. You're just not. As he, as he just comes to these Galatians with, with a, a confounded frustration, one commentator puts this word this way, quote, it refers to a sinful neglect to use one's mental power to the best advantage, end quote. In other words, there's no reason for what you're doing, Galatians, you foolish Galatians. And he goes on, and he doesn't soften it. He says, who has bewitched you? Bewitched is practicing magic on, but it can also mean simply just to, to deceive by crafty or devious means. He's not really saying that somebody has literally come along and cast a spell on them as much as he's saying, look, with, with what you've heard and learned and believed and the faith that you started with, it's so out of step with what you're doing now and, and what you're thinking now that it's like someone has cast a spell on you. And the idea that's carried in the word is evil eyes, evil eyes. You know, when you watch a, a television show or a movie or a play and, and someone is the bad guy or the, the evil lady. It's the eyes that you can just tell by looking at the character that, that bring that out. They had cast evil eyes at you, Paul said. They've tricked you into taking your eyes off of Jesus. That's where their eyes had been. Here in verse 1, he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He, he was in living color, in, in HD, ultra HD, <laughs> in a vivid manner, not, 
not as a reenactment, but verbally. Paul had come to them and he had told them and shown them by preaching the gospel, Jesus on the cross. He said, you saw, it's, it's almost like you were standing there at Calvary. Everywhere that Paul went, he proclaimed Jesus Christ. And just that clearly, he told the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else. I, I didn't come to you and muddy the waters and talk about uh, anything else that, that's going on and, and anything that might be troubling any, any kind of person as they look in the world and as they, they see the things that are happening. He said, no, I came and I just told you all about Jesus and him crucified. Someone might come up to him and ask him, hey, Paul, did you see that game last night? He'd say, have you seen Jesus? <laughs> have you seen him on the cross because of your sins? Someone might come and say, Paul, have you heard what the government did today? I mean, the spending is out of control, right? Paul would say, have you seen what Jesus did for you because your sin was out of control and is out of control and only he can bring it back to you? He'd done that clearly while he was there. It was so clear. Like I said, it was, it was like they were there at Calvary, standing there looking at Jesus on the cross. That's where their eyes had been on Jesus. That's who they had seen and who they'd believed in. He says, remember that. Look to him. Remember that Christ, just the verse before this, in chapter 2, verse 21, he had died, but not for no purpose, not for no reason. He died to bring God's grace to us that we can be justified before him and sanctified. Do you realize that, Christian? Jesus' death did not just give us that, that golden ticket out of hell. He did not just do something for us so that we could be saved, justified, and that was it. The, the cross of Jesus, many times throughout the New Testament, brings to us our salvation in the past and the present and the future. And we talk about this a lot, but we need to make sure we understand. Because when sometimes you read the New Testament, our salvation is past tense. It's something that has happened already in 2 Timothy 1. Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us, past tense, and called us to a holy calling. How did he do that? Well, not because of our works, he says, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's in Jesus that we are saved, past tense. We're saved once and for all. But it's also Jesus' death that saves us, that is saving us present tense. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross of Jesus is saving us, not just that he did save us in the past, but he is now continuing to save us. It's also future tense. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, amen, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's going to save us in the future. And because of his work on the cross when he was crucified, that's why we've got to have Jesus as our focus and the front and center of our mind all the time as much as we can, the Jesus who was crucified on the cross because he saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us. Paul had so clearly explained this Christ and portrayed him in this way that they had seen him. And the contrast is that Paul had shown them Christ. If they had kept their eyes on him, they would have continued faithfully. But they had looked away from Christ because of these evil eyes, the bewitching of these Judaizers. And he says, it just makes no sense. 
It was an inexcusable error, what you're doing, Galatians. They needed to understand the seriousness of this error and how ridiculous it was for them to fall for it, how foolish it was, and we need to understand it as well. It's not any less ridiculous and foolish for us to fall for it. We have the same ability to comprehend. We have the same and even more information with the completion of the New Testament. We have so much more. We have no excuse. He could have written here in Galatians, oh, foolish James, (laughs) who has bewitched you? Who got you off track? What could have happened? Oh, foolish believer, how could this happen? Who has bewitched you with evil eyes to turn your eyes away from the clearly portrayed Jesus onto something, anything else? We need this wake-up call. When we're not thinking rightly and we're not believing rightly and, and, and we're acting improperly, we fall too easily for a lie. We need someone to come along, our brother and sister, to tell us, look, this is not what you should be doing. And, and we... We get into those errors and we start to fall for it. Someone needs to point it out. But when we start to get stubborn or steadfastness in it, we need someone to jerk us out of it, right? Like the, like the child in the road. We don't need you to come up to the child and say, now please come here as the truck is coming down the road. We go and we snatch that child out of the road. We need that sometimes. We didn't get snatching out. Oh, foolish person. Who has bewitched you? What's going on here? You say, but that's not very nice. Many people try to explain this away from Paul. You know, he uses such strong language, you know, foolish and bewitched. Well, he didn't mean it like that. No, he did mean it like that. Get out of the middle of the road. The truck is coming, right? We need this wake-up call. We're talking about eternal life and death. If we fall for a distorted gospel, we should have believed and remained in the truth. We need the wake-up call. Now, we're commanded to be kind, to be loving, to be serving one another. And when I say the word nice, if that's what you think of, then be nice. But nowhere in the scripture do we see the command to be nice because in our minds and in our culture, the word nice means more than that, goes beyond any of that. We think nice means, you know, don't confront people. Just leave people alone. Let them do what they want to do. Don't take a stand in the truth when it's needed. Take a stand for yourself, but don't worry about anybody else, right? Nice is just letting everybody do what they want and even celebrating what they want to do with them, even if it's wrong. And it arises from that fear of man that we've talked about and and from the desire to please man. In that sense, brother and sister, we are never commanded to be nice. Let's not worry about trying to be nice. We're always commanded to please God. And so that does look like being kind and being gentle and being loving, but standing in the truth. We're so focused sometimes on being nice in the church, we forget to be loving. We leave out loving because it's loving to bring the truth to a brother or sister in love, the truth in love, speaking that one another. It's just unloving to be nice. In reality, the the way that we think of it in our culture, nice is unloving. It's not a compliment to be nice. It's not something to aspire to. Kindness, gentleness, love, patience, those those are commanded. Those are held up. Those are the fruit of God's Spirit working in us. So Paul wasn't worried about being nice here. He he was worried about these Galatian believers. 
Here's what you need to do. Wake up. Get your eyes back on Jesus. They'd taken him away from him. And they were doing that more easily and more readily. So verse 2, he sets up the main point of his, his reason, his argument here. He says, let me ask you only this. Now, to me, it was, it's sort of ironic that he says that here because this is now the second question that he asks out of six questions. <laughs> so he's, he says, let me ask you only this. It, it doesn't mean only like this is the only question, clearly. But this is the central question. Here it is. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you receive the Spirit of God? Now, I want to take a second here because we may just skip over this for a minute. We, we may skip right to the, to the end here. But this part here is so important. This question implies that they had received the Spirit of God. Let's make this connection here. A person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ comes to God through faith. By his grace, he justifies that believer, right? We are, made, we are declared totally righteous before God. Positionally, we are, made, uh, we are declared totally, perfectly righteous positionally before God. We saw in uh, verse 20 of chapter 2 that the Son of God, Jesus himself, personally lives in us. He takes up residence in us. That happens when we come to God in faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. But look here at chapter 3, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? The question here is not, did you receive the Spirit? But when you did, how did that happen? Believers, through faith in Jesus, not only are we declared righteous, and not only do we have Jesus in us, we have the Holy Spirit Himself living within us. This is the equation here that, that we need to see the truth of the gospel and the word of God plus Jesus Christ himself plus the Holy Spirit equals no excuse for not growing in this faith. All of that equals change and growth in our change to become more like Jesus because as we started out this morning, this is the power of God, the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit within us. Now just as a brief reminder, we've looked at this before. This is a process called sanctification, and and we've we've said that God elected us for it. Christ prayed for it to happen. Christ died to make us holy. Christ ransomed you and me for that purpose. God commands it of us. God wills it for our life. He says it explicitly, and He promises to bring it to completion. And there are verses for all of those for the sake of time. We won't go through those. But we don't want to get sidetracked here from what's not in this passage. But they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. So do we, brother and sister. The question is how? Did you work for him to come to you? Or did you hear with faith and he came and was given? He says, we've already established that justification comes only through faith. We've already established and understand that Jesus himself comes to us by faith or through faith by God's grace. But how did you receive the Holy Spirit? The obvious implied answer here again is through faith. The whole time Paul was with him, when he was teaching the Galatians, he wasn't teaching them, okay, here's the formula. If you want the Holy Spirit, you do this and you do that. You follow this rule, you stay away from that, and then he comes to you, right? He didn't teach him any of that. There's no rules for receiving the Holy Spirit. He was teaching them the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified, and when they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. At the moment you were justified. Notice also this truth from this question, this implied truth. He says, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? 
to receive the Holy Spirit is entirely passive on our part. There were no works of the law that we could do. There were no rules that we needed to follow. Again, there was no formula or path that we needed to follow to find the Holy Spirit, to go, to go searching for Him. Where is He at? How can we go get the Holy Spirit, right? How can we find Him and, and bring Him to us? There's not a, a door we need to unlock so we get access to the Holy Spirit. We don't earn His presence. We receive Him because He's given to us through faith when we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, a final note here, Paul says, when you did receive the Holy Spirit, how did, it, how did he come to you? This is not a second step, a, a more mature step in the life of a believer. It's something that's, that comes added on later. He, he says, when you did this, how did he come? Because he came to you, believer. Every believer who comes to Christ in faith receives the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, He says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. When we come to Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. There's not a, well, I'll wait around and hope that I can grow enough to earn the Holy Spirit to come upon me in some kind of more mature step. He goes on in Romans 8, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, believer. He dwells within us. So when they looked to Jesus, they were justified. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit began to dwell within them and there was no works, there was no formula, there was no key to unlock this. He came to us by God's grace through faith. And it is faith that brought justification from the Spirit. So why would we turn anywhere else to anything else that could never bring the Spirit or justification? Why would they? Why would we? So often we get off track. We think we can, so we try other things. Now, this may introduce another question for us. We, we may have thought about this as we've been talking about faith and how salvation comes to us by God's grace through faith. This question might come to our mind, and maybe it hasn't occurred yet, but here's the question. Doesn't that mean then that faith is a work? If we can't do works enough to be saved, but we have to have faith, well then, isn't faith a work that brings about the the salvation, the justification? And the answer, of course, is no, that faith is not a work because faith is not the source of our salvation. It's the means that we receive it. It's how God brings us salvation by His grace. And now I heard this illustration. Hopefully this will help. If this is helpful to you, then write it down and save it. If it's not, then again, put it in the round file. (laughs) Throw it out. But let's say that someone sends you a $1 million check. And in this hypothetical scenario, it's not a scam. Okay? If someone sends you a $1 million check, you need to be suspicious that it's a scam, okay? But in this hypothetical situation, let's say that this check is not a scam. For you to receive this check and receive the money from that check, you have to sign the back of the the check, right? To, To endorse the check so you can deposit it. But by signing the back of the check, was that you doing a work so that you could receive the money because you did all the work and you earned all of this money? No, it was the means by which you were able to receive it. You, you know, you, you can't say that, well, by my works, I got this money because I signed the back of the check. 
If faith is a work that earns us salvation, that means salvation comes to us by us, by believing, by drumming it up within ourselves. I'm going I'm to believe. I'm going to make myself believe. If it, if it produces that salvation in us because faith is something we produce in ourselves, if it's a work. And if faith is a work, I did it. I did it. Salvation comes by my faith that I produced I produced my salvation by producing faith, if faith is a work. Salvation does not come to us by a work of faith. Salvation comes to us by the work of God through faith to us. It's the means that he uses. If you picture a train, the, the train is, is the, with the cars is, is our salvation coming to us, and it comes to us on the tracks of faith. But who builds those tracks? Where, where does that faith come from? God builds those tracks. God builds that faith and brings it to us. In, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation is not a work, it's a gift of God, but not only salvation as a whole is a gift of God, each of the parts that enabled it to come, His grace and faith, come to us so that we can be saved. Why? Because all of the glory goes to Him for bringing it about so that none of us can boast as if we did it, as if we made ourselves do it. So this faith to believe, this hearing with faith, is a gift from God himself, along with the rest of his gift, his grace toward us, our justification, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Wow. (laughs) Wow, God. That's what happens when our eyes are rightly focused on Jesus. Your eyes were looking to Jesus. The sight correction here is here, get them back on Jesus. What we see now is the rest of these verses in number two, in verses three through six, Paul says, now that they're on Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep them there. You know, Hebrews 12, two calls Jesus the founder of our faith, the one who started it. He's also the one who finishes it, the, the completer, the perfecter of our faith. No matter how sure we were that we saw Jesus clearly to begin, that we were looking to Him as our Lord and Savior, if it does not continue to the end, we can be sure we didn't see Him through the eyes of faith, only through the eyes of opportunity for ourselves. At the time we saw Him, maybe we saw something we liked. You know, wow, that seems like a good plan. I don't have to go to hell. I can go to heaven if I look to Jesus. And he can give me things like gifts, and, and he can do things in me and, and give purpose in my life, and he can give healing. He can do all of these things for me. So I decided to follow Jesus. But when we don't immediately get those things, we look away at something better. We fall away. And we prove that that looking to Jesus at the beginning wasn't faith, it was just opportunism. Now, we all stumble in a lot of ways, and, and we, you know, we end up looking at the waves in the storm instead of to Jesus like Peter did, right? We, we all do that, but true faith is always going to bring us back to Him so that we don't go away and, and fall away, and He never lets us go. He never will let us go, but it's when we look away and we keep our eyes away and we never come back to Him that we show that that beginning part that we thought was faith wasn't really faith because it didn't continue on. Here's how Paul begins as he transitions from the beginning to the continuing of our life in Christ, in faith. He says, are you so foolish? It's the same word from verse 1. The same word, it's intentional to connect these thoughts. You were justified through faith. 
Are you foolish? Remember that that means unwilling to use just a little bit of our mental faculties and the information we have. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We're on this train of salvation on the tracks of faith. Do you think you can get off and propel the train by pushing it with your works? It's just as ridiculous to think that you can start out with works as it is to think that you can continue with works. Not only will it not work, not only can I not push a train, works tries to push the train off the tracks, sideways, not down the tracks, not towards salvation. They derail the train. Just as your eyes saw Jesus so clearly portrayed as crucified, rather than the evil eyes of being bewitched, keep your eyes on Jesus. This is what Paul is after as he tells them, look to Jesus. You you start there, so continue there. Stay on those tracks. If you want your salvation to be completed, past, present, and future, you want maturity in the faith, you want perfection and completion, you want to make it to the end, you can't do it by works. It's foolish to think you could. There's only one way to get there. It's by faith. Continuing with this train illustration that we have, the polar bear capital of the world is Churchill, Manitoba. It's a town pretty far north in Canada. It's on the Hudson Bay. I've never been there myself, but it looks really interesting to go. People go to see the northern lights. They go to see the beluga whales in the summer, but it's really known for the polar bears. And they have these specialty vehicles you can climb into and and get really high up and safe because they drive you right up into where the polar bears are and you get to see them up close in the wild and you want to be up away from them, uh, from, from the polar bears. But the only way to reach Churchill, Manitoba by land is to take the train, to get on the train, to get to stay on the tracks to take you there. And the tracks only take you there. The tracks don't take you somewhere else. If our destination is completion and maturity and perfection in our faith, the only way for us to begin and to continue and to arrive is through faith. The flesh doesn't do it. You can't get in a car and drive yourself up there. You can't get, you know, start making yourself do it. Walk up there. It's not going to work. Our flesh can't do it. Now, history tells us that the rabbis taught that circumcision in the flesh was how you bring finality, how you bring completeness and perfection and maturity to your faith. They even taught that Abraham, when he became circumcised, that was when he became perfect. That was his only blemish, his only flaw. And when he did that, well, now he's righteous. Paul says, no, the gospel excludes any work of the flesh. Nothing we come up with is going to get us there. Nothing that we can do in ourselves. He's, he's, he can't make this contrast more clear. There's, there's flesh, there's works, there's trying, there's, there's doing, and there's faith. There's hearing, and believing, and the Spirit. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to be made complete and perfect in their faith, and that's commendable. We should want that as well. But we can't do it through our efforts. It's the other religions that teach that. You know, personal asceticism, greater devotion, right? Do these things. Go, see how far you can go and how much you can be. We can't bring that into Christianity. That, that's not what the gospel is all about. Salvation comes to us because of God's work by His grace through faith. As we love Him who loved us first, we have faith and we grow in faith. 
as we love the Savior, the the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when we have faith, that's when our faith grows. If we're talking about how we have not grown in our faith, that we're stuck, where have our eyes been? What have we been looking to other than Jesus? Now, I'm not saying that it's not going to take discipline to grow our faith. I'm not saying it's not going to be effortless. But as we talked about last week, where is that effort going? Are we putting forth any effort, number one? And then number two, where is that effort going? Is it working and doing so I can be noticed or so I can feel better or so I can be applauded so that I can get whatever it is, fill in the blank? Or is it all about how I can love my God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and love His people? Is that where my efforts are going? Is that what I'm desiring to do so that I obey His commands because I love Him, because I fear Him, because I worship Him, because I thank Him? I can't earn anything from Him, but He's already earned all of that from me. So Paul says, get your eyes on Jesus and keep them there. He shows them three areas to see the gospel of Jesus Christ through, work, through faith at work in their lives. He says, A, in verse 4, see his work in the past. In the past, in this question in verse 4, Paul directs them to look backward. Did, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, this word suffer can be a positive or a negative word. It just means the things that you endured, the things that you experienced. The th- all the things that have happened to you As you remember, Paul is purposely using their experience as part of this effort. Look what God did to you in the past. Have you you gone through all of that for no reason? Some scholars believe Paul is telling them to look back at all the things in a good sense, the, the, the things that they've experienced in a good way, not in terms of suffering. If that's what he means, then he's saying, look at your experience how you felt the weight of sin being removed, how you felt the guilt and the constant responsibility to try to work your way into doing something you could never do on your own. Do you remember how God did that for you, the constant unbearable weight of sin and its consequences? He's taken it off of you so you can breathe. (laughs) Other scholars, like the ones here in the ESV, see this term as negative in this light. All that you experienced in persecution, look back at everything that God has brought you through in persecution for the gospel. You endured all of that. And Acts chapter 14 is where we believe he's referring to that persecution. We saw mobs and attempted stonings. Paul was stoned and left for dead. And he taught them in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So is it positive or is it negative? Well, maybe because of Paul's use of this word this way, he means both. Look at everything God's done through your life. All that you've experienced, the bad, the good, and how God has worked through that. You've come through all that. Why? For no reason? Was it for in vain? Have you gone away and shown that it was just meaningless, that it was all for nothing? If you didn't truly have any faith, it was just a show for a time because now you've, you've gone away. He says, look at the past and how God has worked in you. But it doesn't say just look backward. B, verse 5, see his work in the present. After looking at the past, he says, now in the present, verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works as a law or by hearing with faith? Again, at that moment of faith, we have salvation through Jesus, justification through faith. A believer receives both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Paul refers to God as the one who works these miracles, the miracle of salvation. 
But he also refers to the miracles that were being done there. In Acts 14, again, we say this is, we believe this is describing Galatia. Verse 3, it says that the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace. How? By granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That was how God at the time chose to confirm the message. Would he ever stop doing that? That's the question that comes to our mind, right? That's the question that, that, that gets asked all of the time within Christianity. Would he ever stop using signs and wonders to confirm the message? Well, he could decide to do that if something better came along to confirm his message. Better than a sign or a wonder. Do we have that now? We do. It's here in the Word of God. We have His complete Scriptures, the canon of the Word of God, all 66 books. I think it's clear that the sign gifts, those signs and wonders that confirm God's Word did not continue after the death of the apostles. It's documented by the early church fathers. They said, look, these things are done. We have the complete Word of God, and people are not walking around in the same way, doing the same kinds of signs and wonders in mass that were happening at this time. In fact, for 1,800 years of church history, it was really the fringe heretical groups that claimed to have signs and wonders. Now, are there accounts of God working in miraculous ways? Of course there are. Over thousands of years, if you were here, was it last Sunday, and we heard from Terry and Cindy and, and the work that God did in Papua New Guinea, of course God still does as, as God wills. And He will use a miracle, He will use providence, He will use the normal, ordinary means that He uses to bring about His will. Nobody is saying God can't or God won't, except that God can't lie, because His Word tells us that. But it was only in about 1914 at the Azusa Street meeting that suddenly sign gifts apparently started up all over again in mass. And we see that they're fundamentally different from what the New Testament describes. So I don't want to get sidetracked here. I don't want to get out of this passage. God does as God wills. The point that Paul is making here is the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the salvation that's brought about, you don't do any of that. God does. God does that through faith. It's not my works, my abilities that bring the miracles or bring the Spirit of God. I can't save anybody, can I? You can't save anybody as much as we would love to. We've got prodigal children. We've got friends who have wandered. We've got people out there that that have never heard the Lord. We'd love to just bring them the Lord and bring them the message and save them all. (laughs) We can't do that. Nothing that God does comes about by our works. It's the experience of God's work in the present that Paul points them to and for us to look at. It verifies the point. Look what God's done in our life. Look how he has worked to save us. That miracle alone is enough for us to say, wow, God, I couldn't do that. Only you could. It comes about not by works, but through hearing with faith. The final area that Paul points them to is verse 6, and it's a transition into the next section, but he says here in verse 6, see his work in the passage, (laughs) in the passage of the Scripture here from the Old Testament. It says, look at God's work at you in the past. Look at God's work in you in the present, and look at God's work in the passage. Even as or just as, that means in the same way. Now, the Judaizers were using Old Testament scriptures. They were saying, look, the Old Testament proves you have to work or God won't save you. And Paul was going to lay out a case here, starting in verse 6 and going through for many verses here in chapter 3. No, the Old Testament teaches that God saves by his grace through faith. 
And that faith is evident in the things that are done. But those things that we do do not save us. Abraham's faith, his belief was counted. That term, accounting term of reckoning and imputing. And there's more we could talk about here, but we've run out of time. So we need to understand this work of God in us, to hear about it, to believe it, to hold fast to it, to live it out in faith. We can fight against his work when we're thinking wrongly. When we think about all that God did, and we think about all the things we need to do, we can't do anything. God did everything for us. Jesus came to die for us. Jesus is the one who prayed. Jesus, as God, prayed to God the Father for us to be made holy, that we could never be made. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit Himself. We have Jesus with us. But we can counteract all of God's work when we start thinking wrongly. How can we do that? I just want to close with this. Have you ever said something like this? You know, this hard thing is happening. This hard thing is coming. I don't know what God's trying to teach me through this. I know you've said that. I've heard you say that. I've said that. <laughs> we all, I don't know what God's trying to teach me through this. Yes, we do. How foolish of us. <laughs> Who has bewitched us to take our eyes away from Jesus? Of course we know what God's trying to do through the things that happen to us. He's, we've already gone through it. He's teaching us the gospel. He's teaching us to depend on Him, to set our eyes, to keep our eyes on Christ in faith. Number one, we know exactly what God's trying to do because He's not trying, He's succeeding. He promises to bring it to pass, to, to bring it to completion. Number two, God doesn't stop working in us. You know, sometimes we get this idea that, well, God leaves us alone for a little bit and we get to take a little rest and we get to enjoy life and, and then suddenly He comes knocking at the door and says, okay, it's time. <laughs> I got to start working on you again. God's not leaving us alone. It's not time for him to do a little work in us to change us here. He's constantly working. He's constantly protecting and constantly guiding and constantly working on us to bring about his will. He doesn't want us to look to Jesus when he brings difficulty and that's it. We're supposed to be looking to Jesus all the time, in every place, in every way. That's what faith looks like, and that's how it grows. Not by looking at ourselves and not figuring out what we need to do and how we can be better and do more. When we're learning Jesus more, when we're loving Jesus more, and that's when he's growing that faith in us so that no matter what's going on around us, no matter what's happening inside us, we know that God's using all of it to bring about his perfect plan, his perfect will. That's what faith looks like. That's how it grows when our eyes are on Jesus. Father, we pray that that would be true for each one of us, God, that you would help us, that you would point out to us and show us where we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. God, we pray that you would use your word. We pray that your spirit would convict us. God, we pray that our brothers and sisters around us, Lord, would just grab a hold of us. And Lord, even if it's not nice, but it's kind and it's loving to say, here's the truth. Father, that you would enable each of us and strengthen each of us to do that in love for one another. God, make us more faithful. God, we hear the, the cry of that father in Mark, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, we ask that of you, the, the God who is the God of faith. Father, we ask for that gift and we ask for it to grow within each one of us, Lord, looking to our Savior Jesus looking at what he's done for us in the past, looking at how he's working in the present, and God, looking forward to the day when he brings to completion what he has started in us. 
What a great God you are. How powerful, how wise. What a good and great God you are. Father, we pray all of this because you're worthy, because you deserve it. Father, because Jesus has saved us for it, we exalt him. We lift up his name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.